1: Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin, coming to you live from Olympic Rio. This week, we will talk to Jules Boykoff, author of Power Games and a student of the history of Olympic protest, and we are going to speak to Stephanie Rice about the issue of race and erasure in Olympic Rio.
2: here we are inside the secure Olympic zone. What are your impressions as far as what you see? Well, it's interesting since we just came from Vila Todromos, which is a favela just around the corner that was steamrolled and then rebuilt for the Olympics. So we just saw the 20 or so fresh units that were built Compare that sort of vibrant community where you see signs of protest to this sort of antiseptic corporate space and it's quite a striking juxtaposition for sure. Now there is green space here in the Olympic area. Describe for everybody the green space that we're a part of. That's exactly right. We're in the green space right now, and by that, Dave, means green cement, so cement that has been painted green. I mean, that's another thing that's incredibly striking about entering this Olympic space is that it's a huge slab of cement that we're standing on here, and this one has been painted green to make it, I don't know, look a little bit more appealing.
1: Yeah, I, I and mean, it's so interesting because the opening ceremonies had this entire tribute to the environment and saving the environment— And, of course, here we are in this space that's just, like, countless tons of poured concrete.
2: Mm -hmm. And we're right near a bay that is, you know, filled with sludge and waste. No, that's exactly right. I think Rio 2016 is shaping up to be the most greenwashed games ever. And as we pass... Keep in mind, I want to repeat that for people, the most greenwashed games ever, not the most green games ever. (laughs) Yeah a key distinction to make, for sure. You know, as we passed between Villa Autogimo and out in front of this really snazzy Marriott hotel that was built right next to the... Favela, there we passed by a canal that had utterly putrid water, sludgy garbage sitting on top, soda bottles, etc. And that's just right outside of the Olympic zone here. So there were huge green promises made around the Olympics, in particular to fix up the city's notorious waterways, and that just simply hasn't happened. And that's got to be one of the most biggest disappointments for everyday people here in Rio because that would have been a positive green legacy, not like. The cement legacy that will probably be here long after the Games is green cement.
1: Now, let's, uh, so folks who don't know your work, Jules, you're somebody who catalogs Olympic protests and resistance. Mm-hmm. That's a key part of your book, Power Games. There's been a very interesting turn here in
2: Rio in terms of how they've approached dissent. Can you talk about that? Well, sure. So, first of all, on the opening day of the ceremonies here in Rio, the official opening, there was also two huge mobilizations here in Rio. One was uh, called Fora Tamer, was to get rid of Tamer, Tamer out, the interim vice president who has approval ratings at about 11%, incredibly unpopular, huge, festive group of people, probably about 20,000 in total protesting along Copacabana. Later in the afternoon, there was a protest at a, at a local prasa. about 1,000 people focusing on anti-Olympics, immense police presence. Now, here in the Olympic space, there's a rule within the Olympic charter, Rule 50, it says you can't engage in any sort of political protest and recently at some of the events here in Rio that protest I was describing before, uh, Fora Temer, spilled over into the arenas and people held up signs that said Fora Temer and they were physically expelled from the arenas here, kicked out for their political statements. Now, just. Yesterday, a Brazilian federal judge ruled that that was unconstitutional, that people should be able to make political statements. So we have kind of a standoff here, the diktats of the IOC charter and the demands of everyday people. And I would say one last thing about this, Dave, is that the wider political scenario here is important. Military dictatorship only happened ended in 1985 and that's pretty fresh in the memories of a lot of people here. So when everyday people in Rio are watching on their TVs and seeing people expelled from these games because they're holding for a Temer signs, it cuts pretty deep. And so there's a lot of support out there among the general public for allowing people to do peaceful protests like Fora Temer and others. I'm a little bummed out because I'm holding my fora temer sign, but I probably won't be kicked out for holding it up. You might not, Dave. There's other things, though, you can do to get kicked out. Yeah, that is true. All right. (laughs) Well said. Uh, For Edge of Sports, I'm Dave Zirin.
1: That was Jules Boykoff, the author of Power Games. And Now let's go to Stephanie Rice to talk about what is happening in the parts of Rio that are not making it to your television. And now we're going to talk to Stephanie Rice. Stephanie Rice is a U.S. Ph.D. student who's been living in Rio for, for some time. How long have you been living here?
3: About a year and a half now.
1: About a year and a half and her area of research is um, displaced communities, the displaced of the displaced, if you will, on the outskirts of Rio, and I want to speak to her about how these impoverished communities have been interacting with the Olympics. That's really my first question. Maybe state a little bit, very specifically, about the communities in which you've been immersed.
3: So I've been focusing a lot on the Basada Fluminense, which is actually the suburbs of Rio, and Rio's kind of placing itself at this moment, as a global city, it hasn't really contended with its position as a regional capital. So the people in the Bashad the Fluminense, feel very forgotten and very...
1: And just to be clear for the U.S., when we say suburbs, we're not talking Scarsdale, New York. Just for folks who don't understand what suburbs mean in a Brazilian and Latin American, and frankly, in a global context, suburbs can mean something very different. Can you speak a little about that?
3: Yeah. So the suburbs here are kind of the result of very rapid urbanization. So... When you're thinking about kind of the informality of the favelas, these are entire communities, entire municipalities, cities that are kind of built on the foundation of informality.
1: How do you define informality?
3: A lot of how the the communities were formed. So they've either self-construction by community members, but also in how it's been governed. It's kind of a long story, but when Rio was the capital of Brazil this area outside of Rio was very much neglected because it wasn't really overseen by any sort of political body. It was technically overseen by Niteroi across the Guanabara Bay, but its relationship is much closer to Rio. Mm -hmm. Geographically, culturally, it's much closer to Rio.
1: And in these communities that have been um, marginalized, forgotten, what is their place within uh, Olympic Rio at this point? What is happening to them uh, during these Olympics?
3: So with the pacifying police units that have been installed in the favelas throughout Rio, one of the biggest criticism is all of the drug traffickers and violence have actually been pushed to these suburbs. So these already violent regions have become increasingly violent. And then even with that, when you're thinking about the Guanabara Bay, this whole region sits on the bay because they were kind of constructed informally. It has some of the worst sanitation in all of Brazil, not just the state of Rio. So all of those problems that Rio was intending to resolve kind of get even further compounded in the Bashar, the Fluminense, because they're not cleaning up the bay, they're not doing anything about drug trafficking or violence or the insecurity that a lot of people face.
1: So one of the critiques of the London Olympics was uh, London Olympic organizers said that homelessness went down dramatically, but what they were doing was just basically putting homeless people on buses and driving them to Manchester. Uh, is, is This is kind of like an an extreme, even more violent version of that process where they're not addressing a problem through the Olympics. They're basically just cleansing it for an international audience.
3: That's been another critique that I've heard uh, from various people in the Bashad of Fluminense, that people from Rio have been pushed, especially homeless people have been pushed into these communities. But really this dynamic has been going on for like a century <laughs> in terms of this relationship between Rio and its suburbs. It's always been kind of a point of, transit, a point to get stuff either from farms and bring them into the city. But it's never really been a place where public policymakers have been investing in terms of how do you build functioning society. So for example, 11 people who have either been running for mayoral or city councilman positions in the Bashada Fluminense have been murdered. So this is when Rio is at the spotlight of The world right now, you have right on the outskirts this Wild West, militia-driven vigilantism when it comes to the political situation there.
1: Um. I have to ask, given these descriptions, uh, given that this is where you've immersed yourself, have you felt at any point unsafe or that you're not welcome? Or is it the sort of thing where people there are glad for any sort of outsider who wants to make their story known?
3: The regular everyday people there are very welcoming. I never particularly feel unsafe. It's funny, I take the train every day. I get at the train Central do Brasil, and my Brazilian friends often haven't even been there to take the train to the suburbs, and many people are shocked that I would go there, but I feel safe from the moment I step into Central do Brasil to the moment I arrive in, for example, Duque de Caxias, which is the biggest city in these suburbs. If I ever feel unsafe, it's more just not my own safety, but just being aware of the precariousness in which people live there.
1: What about the issue in terms of these exurbs, if you call them, if that's even the right word for it, of race, racism, white supremacy? I mean, it is striking when you're at Olympic events where there are a lot of Brazilians. it It is very white. And yet, the way race is discussed in Brazil is, of course, very different than in the United States um, for, for a host of reasons, like language about Jim Crow and segregation is not really part of the language here. But, but what does it look like in practice in these poor communities?
3: Funnily enough, when I was on the train yesterday, I was thinking, well, wow, I've never seen so many white people on the train. because uh, So on the way to Deodoro, which is one of the Olympic sites, you have to pass through Deodoro to get to the da Fluminense. So I saw a fair amount of American and Australian tourists on this train. So the favelas are a problem because they're in the middle of the city and it's this impoverished, mostly poor black population. When you're thinking about these suburbs, for the people who want a certain image of Rio, that's where those poor black people are supposed to be in the minds of those who are creating this global Rio of beaches But they still need the samba musicians, right? So they are definitely tremendously indebted to black culture and Afro-Brazilian culture in Brazil. And in some ways, Brazil does celebrate that, but it doesn't do the work of investing in predominantly black communities. It doesn't do uh, the political change right now. A lot of the advances in terms of affirmative action policies, in terms of Students having support when they're going to universities, a lot of those programs have been slashed. So when you're thinking from a public policy standpoint, even though there wasn't uh, explicit Jim Crow-like apartheid policies, how the government has always functioned here in terms of neglect, it kind of renders itself the same. And then furthermore, with the change to the Temer administration, a lot of those advances that people have seen have been completely slashed.
1: Did you see the Olympic opening ceremonies?
3: I actually didn't watch it. Okay. (laughs) I was was Uh, at
1: a protest. (laughs) No, no, no. That's very understandable. Um, Uh, So Stephanie was at a protest, not the ceremonies. There was this kind of interpretive dance tribute to the favelas as part of the ceremonies. Does something like that serve to remove them from the land of erasure and invisibility? or Is that a positive or is something like that just brutally ironic since they're showing the world the favelas while these same favelas are under a form of military and police occupation during the Olympics. Where do you fall on that?
3: Um, I, I mean, I think the military and police occupations were actually part of Rio's process of trying to bring in the favelas as another thing to be consumed during these Olympics. So in a sense, Rio does want you to consume the right favelas, the favelas that they say are pacified, that have the extraordinary views So in a sense, that was always kind of part of the project. There was always this kind of cruel irony in how Rio was going about integrating the favelas, if for lack of a better word, pacifying is the word that they use. And when you make this kind of cultural homage to them, but people who live in favelas aren't allowed to have funk parties, funky music is kind of a version of hip hop that was born in the favelas, when you're making these cultural gestures, but people aren't able to express themselves culturally because they're being pacified by these militarized police, you're still just using it as a consumer product. At the end of the Mm day, Rio is for sale, and the people who live here don't have any buy-in in in that process.
1: There's been much in the news in the United States about the rise of police killings in Rio in the lead-up to the Olympics. And there's been resistance to those killings. Um, Have you felt or seen any direct connection between the growth of the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States, the influence of that movement, the global nature of that movement? Of course, it showed up in places like like Gaza and and big demonstrations in Britain. Has has that impact been felt in Rio?
3: Yeah, so actually there's a delegation from Black Lives Matter Boston who was here two weeks ago. Uh, Right before the Olympics began, and they did a series of workshops with various community organizations here, such as the Mothers of May, which formed after a terrible massacre in Sao Paulo. Amnesty International was involved. So various organizations, Colectivo Papujato, which is a community-based journalism collective here in Rio... Various local organizations have kind of come around this idea of how they say in Portuguese, joven negro vivo, like young black males alive, because it's definitely a problem here. Say that
1: again so Uh, people can really get that. That's fascinating.
3: Young black males alive, because here... Oh, no, in Portuguese. Can you say (laughs) it? Joven negro vivo. And the issue here is because of how race is articulated in Brazil... A lot of people don't say that police are killing black men. And this movement is trying to draw attention to the fact that they are, yes, in fact, killing young black men who live in favelas. And when you're thinking about the different numbers, it's astronomical. I mean, Mm -hmm. Brazil kills an order of magnitude more people (laughs) easily than the United States. And there's...
1: Is it one out of five homicides in the state of Rio last year were committed by police? Is that correct?
3: Yes. And there's very little if any, charges brought against these police officers. The murders are rarely investigated. And the big example last year were the cops in Costa Bada, which is outside of the city, who killed five young men in a car with 111 bullets to the car. And that has been kind of one of the biggest railing cries around the Chove Negro Vivo movement, Mm. in that those cops are still walking the streets. How it works in Brazil is you are kind of in prison for a small period of time. But if no real charges are brought against you, you're free to keep working. So those cops are still functioning, quote-unquote, members of society. Whereas one of the mothers of these young men, actually there was a port in Globu that she died of sadness.
1: Oh, Last question for you. if there If there's one thing you wish everybody who's consuming the Olympics in the United States could know about Rio, what would that be?
3: Rio is, it calls itself the marvelous city, right? And that's very much true, but it doesn't do itself justice in terms of how it recognizes its own marvelousness. So for example, at the port area, you can go to the Coca-Cola tent and you can do a Nissan bungee jump, but that's the site where 2 million African slaves were trafficked. And there's no form of remembering that and thinking about what that means for Brazil in terms of its tremendously beautiful culture and painful history, but it doesn't really want to recognize that. And it wants to make itself this postcard without doing the work of making itself also a serious city that thinks about the history of not only racism and slavery, but also the favelas and how they were constructed and how people are doing a lot of great things, but the city itself doesn't take into account its own greatness in in those those small moments.
1: Thank you so much, Stephanie, for your time. How can people follow your work, keep up with the work that you're doing?
3: Um, So I write for the blog Rio on Watch, mostly focusing on race and the suburbs of Rio.
1: Your Twitter handle if you have
3: one? Uh, at Steph Reist.
1: That's S T E P H R E I S T. Thank you so much. And now I've got some choice words about my experience here in Rio. Uh, this piece is called The Narcotic Olympic Joy in the Face of Erasure. There is a link to this in a, the description of this podcast over at thenation.com. Okay, look, so there is joy in Olympic Rio. Make no mistake about it. I know I've been a big critic of the Olympics, but there is joy here. Maybe it takes two hours to travel 25 miles across the city, and maybe only 15% of the Olympic decorations were delivered, and maybe there are more troops on the ground per capita than the United States had in Iraq at the height of Bush's war, but there is joy. This joy is the undeniable narcotic. It is a potent blend of often ignored sports and undeniably compelling human interest stories. And maddening as they are, the Olympics are the syringe. I have witnessed this joy firsthand in the rapturous response to Rio's own Rafaela Silva, Brazil's first gold medalist in these games, who won gold in the judo competition. Silva hails from the internationally infamous City of God favela, While news reports have invariably referred to the Judica Great as coming from a notorious and crime-ridden slum, as if she rose from the ranks of a community determined to drag her down, the reality is different. Rafaela Silva and her family are proud of their roots, and their community holds her close to their heart. Rafaela made it this far because of a Rio community-based NGO called Instituto Reacio, founded by Brazilian Judica 2004 bronze medalist Flavio Conto. Her sister Raquel, also a graduate of the Institute, said, Before I or my sister got into judo, we were pretty rebellious. We weren't interested in going to school, and sport radically changed our lives. It was transformational, like water to wine. In other words, the operating lesson for favela activists and residents in City of God has been that if you invest in the impoverished youth of Rio, Greatness will bloom all around. Rafaela Silva did not rise in spite of City of God, but was forged by these surroundings into the person her mother now calls a warrior of gold. When the gold was placed around Silva's neck, the thousands of people, as described to me by Rio on Watch journalist Meg Healy, were just cheering and crying side by side. Unfortunately, residents in Rio's favelas have been displaced, and City of God has been plagued by police repression and violence in the lead-up to these Olympics. Rafaela Silva's very existence is a rebuke to these priorities. This Olympic drug was something I also imbibed heartily, live and in person, as Brazil's ragtag Olympic basketball team beat powerful and heavily favored Spain by 1.66 to 65 on a basket with less than five seconds to go. Hoops hardly meets the description of marginalized sport that only sees light at the Olympics, but in Brazil, where soccer, volleyball, and Brazilian jiu-jitsu reign supreme, it's not exactly a national pastime. But going against a Spanish team packed with NBA players and led by future Hall of Famer Pau Gasol, the Brazilian team egged on by an overwhelmingly Brazilian crowd that treated every possession like a World Cup counterattack was carried to victory. This was the closest experience to a soccer game that I've ever had in years of watching live basketball. Every successful possession by Brazil had people hugging, high-fiving, and twirling their kids or other people's kids. Every possession by Spain was less defined by any kind of Olympic spirit than by thousands of people engaging in some very creative Portuguese profanity. It was exhausting, and when it ended, the two-hour trip back across town felt more like an adrenaline cool-down than a chore. There is joy in Rio of a different kind as well. There is joy in people who are taking advantage of the international spotlight to strike out against the invisibility imposed upon them by their own government. There are the campaigners against interim president Michel Temer, who achieved power through a judicial coup of President Dilma Rousseff, holding up Fora Temer, that means out with Temer, signs amid Olympic events. During the first days, activists were being arrested and detained for raising their voices. After several of these protests went viral, a judge issued an injunction against any more removals saying that protests during Olympic events was a constitutional right. This also stands as a stunning rebuke of the International Olympic Committee's efforts to make sure that the only political messages on display are their own. Ironically, the reason for the initial round of ejections was a law signed by Dilma in May just before she was impeached to prohibit racist or discriminatory chants at Olympic venues. Now, unless one believes that illegitimate coup presidents are victims of discrimination, this ruling was something to celebrate. Then there is Villa Autodromo. This is a once vibrant community mere yards from the main Olympic Park that has been winnowed from 650 families to 24. Olympic displacement turned it from a unique community to ruins. When I visited Villa Autodromo in May, it was 24 homes amidst rubble. In an effort to remove Vila as an issue before the Olympics, the city built 24 new homes on the same land, all near-identical white box-like structures that look like they were taken out of a box marked Ikea. But the 24 remaining families have not ended their struggle. Anti-Olympic messages are written across the walls, and they have also set up their own Museum of the Removed that documents their long struggle with the city. It contains vivid photographs of police violence, artistic testimonials to their Herculean efforts to not be brushed aside like refuse, tossed by the city into the canal that surround their homes. For media members leaving the brand-new Courtyard Marriott, if they take a left toward Villa Todromo instead of a right to the Olympic Park, they can, in five minutes, learn the history of an Olympic struggle against all odds little different from the struggle of Rafaela Silva the struggle to be visible in a country and world that sees them as expendable. Resistance is its own narcotic, even more potent than the Olympics itself. This week, the Just Stand Up Award goes to Gabby Douglas, U.S. gymnast. And it's only going to her because people are giving her so much crap because her hand wasn't on her heart for the national anthem. Give me a break. I wonder what all these fragile people would have done in 1968 when Tommy Smith and John Carlos raised their fists. I mean, we don't even know if what Gabby Douglas was doing was political, but this idea that she she should be uh, somehow pilloried because she didn't dare pay appropriate fealty to the flag makes me sick. And actually, you know what it should do? It should give us some appreciation for what people like Tommy Smith and John Carlos actually went through through, given how people are freaking out. So Gabby Douglas, we stand with your right to do whatever the hell you want during the national anthem. Like this idea that uh, we live in a free society, just watch what you do, uh, is absurd and it's being taken to absurd lengths. And so, hey, we stand with Gabby. That's all there is to it.
4: Hey, everybody. This is a quick word from your faithful producer, Dan, while Dave is away doing big work in Rio. Last week, we introduced a new feature, the Edge of Sports Hotline, and we asked our listeners to call in at 401-236-3343, that's 401-236-EDGE, and last week's question, were the negative stories out of Brazil dampening your excitement for the games, or would you still be able to enjoy them? Here are some of the great calls we got.
5: Hi Dave, this is Sam calling from New York. I will be
1: watching this year. I'm the most excited I've been to watch this year for quite some time because my kids are old enough to watch. I have two sons, five and seven, and I think they're going to really enjoy the competition. But at the same time, I do have misgivings. I think any city putting on the Olympics at this point,
5: it's an economic atrocity. Uh, Hi, Dave. This is Toby. I'm calling from Philly. Regarding the Olympics themselves, um, even though... I'm still fully aware of what's going on in the country, and I feel bad for the people and, and what's going on over there. but um I'm hoping that the attention that people like you and other socially aware individuals bring to those individuals can uh help them out in some form or fashion, but i'm just uh, I'm a sucker for the competition. I love seeing our uh athletes compete, you know seeing their personalities, and just there's just something compelling about seeing people train for four years for this uh, one moment. So I'm still gonna be watching, but I'll definitely have the people of Brazil in my thoughts and keep keep doing the good work. Thank you, Dave, bye. Hey, Dave, this is Jacob Rogers from South Carolina. I'm still gonna be watching the Olympics even though I know everything that's going on that's wrong in Rio. I mean, I love seeing all the sports that don't get any attention any other time of year or any other year, uh, like track and field and swimming and watching those. And but at the same time, I also just want to support the athletes that have been pursuing this dream their entire life. You know, they're not involved in the dirty process of getting the Olympic Games or hosting them. They're just there trying to do their best. So I still want to support them. And I still think even though the IOC is corrupt and terrible, somehow some good can come out of their terribleness. I mean, just look at the refugee team that's coming on the field this year, highlighting the refugee crisis that's going on around the world. So I guess evil people can still be used for a good means. That doesn't mean that I'm forgetting about what's going on in Rio. I'm still watching it through those lenses of knowing what's happening. Obviously, the most tragic part, which is people being run out of their homes and their favelas in Rio. I just hope that Somewhere along the way, some athlete brings that to light, And that's what I think about the Olympics this year.
6: Hi, this is Andy Milne, originally from London, England, now living in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. Will I be tuning into Rio? Yes, I will. But I'm becoming jaded. I'm in my mid-40s now. The Olympics to me aren't the same. Um, I like my athletes, uh, drug-free and clean. I like my sports traditional. We've had two great stories already. The first Olympian who was born in the 21st century. I believe she was a table tennis athlete, didn't last very long, but that's a kind of cool story. The international refugee team as well. That's the second of the great stories that we've had so far. NBC's coverage of the opening ceremony was poor. The fact that it wasn't live broadcast was shameful. I feel like American journalists have already pre-written the stories. Uh, the Michael Phelps story, the Alison Felix story, the gymnastics story. Just let the Olympics pan out. There'll be a lot of greatness there. And if we don't be too jaded and overly worry about the Zika virus, um, then I think we'll have a great game. There'll be wonderful stories and there'll be a few controversies as well. But it's, you know, the, the joy of the Olympics. Uh, Dave, keep up the great work. Love your podcast, my man.
2: So my name is Kansas Burton. And I am watching the Olympics this year. You know, you always hear stories about displacement and, and corruption um, going on during the Olympics. But it's also a time where women athletes are celebrated, especially in the United States. I feel like they're held to the standard they should be during the other three years. And I really love watching women athletes compete and kind of unfortunate that I have to wait every 4 years to do it.
4: Thanks so much to Andy, Jacob, Sam, Toby and Candace for calling in. And this week, we want to know if you've been watching the Olympics, what, if anything, have you found inspiring? All around gold medalist Simone Biles, the first African American swimmer to win an individual gold medal, Simone Manuel, maybe someone not named Simone. We want to hear from you. Give us a ring at 401 236 3343. That's 401 236 Edge. And leave us a message. We'll include the best ones here on the podcast.
1: That's it from me from Edge of Sports, the Rio edition. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you want to listen to back episodes, you can go to edgeofsportspodcast.com. You can always reach me on Twitter at edgeofsports or email edgeofsports at slate.com. For Dan Bloom, my producer, we are out of here. Peace.